Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. We're in a series called Grounded. We're working our way through our church statements of faith. We've gone through some hot topics the last three weeks, and today we're out of the hot topics, okay? And, uh, but the biggest thing we've been learning as we've gone through the, you know, the last three weeks, and we've talked about being pro-life, and we've talked about marriage, and how we have a historic understanding of some of these things, like the historic Christian understanding of these things, but to approach them here at Crossview, our name is Crossview, because we want to view everything through the cross, and that means even when we hold some of these historic, maybe more traditional beliefs, that we come at them from a place of deep, deep empathy and love for people. Amen? And so today, in part seven, we're looking at our seventh statement of faith, and it's about the church. And am I allowed to use my new toy? Not yet. (laughs) So I don't get to use my toy yet, so that's okay. If you have your phone here, you can go online, but I'm going to read to you our statement of faith. Okay, And this is statement number seven on the church, and here's what our statement of faith says. The church, the universal church, consists of all people who have accepted Jesus as their Savior. Okay, And then it says in the second part of the statement, it says the local church is any specific group of followers of Jesus who gathered in his name for teaching, worship, and prayer, desiring to serve each other, God, and others. So two parts, just like most evangelical churches, two parts to our statement of faith about the church. There's the universal church, which is everybody around the world who believes in Jesus, and then there's the local church, which is any gathering of believers, like what we're doing here uh, tonight, but even more than just a gathering for a service. But it's any group of believers who get together, not just for a service, but to serve God, to serve each other, those sorts of things, okay? So that's the church. Now, before we go any deeper, I want to talk to you about what the church actually means, because I like the word church, because I'm always fascinated in kind of the history of words and where words come from and all that sort of, oh, wow. That's my Microsoft. By the way, this isn't online, so that's all totally good. Oh my goodness gracious. There we go. Just wait, guys. Let me flip this next one. Okay, this is... Oh. Oh. That's just... And can you see it? Can you see it? Can you read it? Now, I know some people, uh, maybe on the sides, it might be a little harder. So, But we're going to all figure this out, okay? Because we want equal opportunity for all to see. But anyway, I'm also going to flip the next one. Mark, don't do the next one for me. I want to do the next one too. The word church, okay? So here's my little word study, okay? It comes from, so in Greek, okay, in New Testament Greek, when the New Testament translates in English, when you read church, you are reading in the Greek, the word was ecclesia, okay? And in New Testament times, the word ecclesia that we now translate in English as church, and I could go into the, the English history, how the English word church came to be and how it got married to Ecclesia, the Greek word, but we won't do that because we just don't have time. But anyway, it gets, but in the New Testament times, Ecclesia just meant assembly. So any kind of assembly was called Ecclesia. So that didn't need to just be like what we think of as church, which is we do it for, for church, for Christian purposes, to worship Jesus, right? But in New Testament times, this was any kind of assembly, 
okay? So it could be a legal assembly, could be a political assembly. I'll just show you one quick example because I like to geek out a little bit on words. But Acts chapter 19, verse 39 says this, if there is anything further you want to bring up, Okay, so they're just having a discussion. It must be settled in a legal assembly. Now, this is happening, you know, there's this riot in Ephesus. If you read Acts 19, the, the context here is essentially the mayor of Ephesus is, is telling everyone, look, if, if, you, if, you wanna, if there's anything further you want to figure out here, we've got to bring this riot down, but we'll settle it in a legal ecclesia, which is the word that we translate church. So clearly in New Testament times, it didn't have the same meaning as we have now. It just meant any kind of assembly. So we don't use it. So now there's all kinds of reasons in the English why we stopped just using assembly to, to, to refer to everything and we use church specifically for what we Christians do when we have a service, okay? But we've now, but, but like in those days, you know, a town council meeting would have been church. You know, it would have been uh, ecclesia. So that's very interesting. Anyway, now what about the universal church? So we said in the first part of our statement here tonight, the universal church is, the, the universal ecclesia is all the people in the world who follow Jesus. Now, obviously, you know, the universal church is not an assembly. We don't, you know, right now, I looked at the most recent statistics, and there's over 2 billion people in the world right now who call themselves Christians, okay? And we'll just take people at face value because I want to be taken at face value. Um, but there's a lot of Christians in the world, too many of us to get together in an assembly. And so when we talk about, the, so the local church is a group that actually gets together. The universal church is just all people who have accepted Jesus as their savior. And I want you to notice the simplicity of this, okay? So when we talk about the body of Christ around the world, when we talk about Crossview, we talk about one assembly, one group of people, okay? And there's many other different groups. But when we talk about, you know, the body of Christ around the world, there's really a, quite a simplicity to it. Like, we have all these statements of faith, and I've been taking you through our statement of faith, you know, for the last seven weeks. Um, but when it comes to the universal church, there's just one statement of faith. It's anyone who has accepted Jesus. And by the way, that is very biblical, and I want us just to sit there for a moment. Again, there's a reason we've called this local assembly Cross View, because we genuinely want it to be centered on the main, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. It's all about Jesus. Now, I could show you many passages in Scripture where, you know, we can find scriptural foundations. We have some of these right here. But I'm just going to take you to Philippians for just a moment. And that's the famous story of Paul and Silas are in jail. And uh, there's an earthquake. Everybody's escaping. Back then, uh, if people escaped, the guards got in trouble. The guard's about to kill himself. Paul says, don't do it. And, uh, and then we have this story. So Mark, if you want to throw that up there. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved, flash the next screen, and they replied, here are the eight statements of faith from Crossview. No. Here are the nine statements of faith from such and such a denomination, or the 16 statements of faith from such and such a catechism, or whatever. They replied, very simply, this is the universal church, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It really is that 
simple, okay? And it's not that all the other stuff is not important, okay? It's not that what we believe, you know, all the different things that are out there, it's not that behavior doesn't matter. It's not that, you know, the different beliefs that we hold don't matter. But the point is, all of those things, even though they matter, matter a lot less than the main thing, which is Jesus. We have to keep these things in perspective. Jesus is the one, I was going to say the thing, he's not a thing, he's a person, but Jesus is the one that unifies. It's all about Jesus. He's the one that unifies his body around the world. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute. Uh, you know, if, if we were to ask a quiz, what unifies the body of Christ around the world? And of course, Jesus, that's always the right answer in, in church, right? So there's Jesus. But then someone might say, but what about the Bible? The Bible is also something that unifies Christians. But is it? Do you know how many denominations are in the world today? I've quoted this a few times before. I'm going to put it up on the screen right now. But do you know how many denominations there are around the world? And I went, this is actually from the Center for Religious Studies and Christianity, Gordon Conwell uh, Theological uh, Center. But anyway, so this is a legit number. There are 45,000 different denominations in the world. And you say, oh my goodness. And by 2050, they estimate at the rate that it's growing, we're going to be somewhere around 64, 65,000 denominations. So we got a few more church splits coming and a few more church plants. Okay? That's just reality. Okay? That's just, that's just reality. 45,000. Okay? Do you know why there are so many? You want to know the main reason why there's so many different denominations? Because we cannot all figure out the same way to interpret the Bible. I mean, culture plays a little bit into this. Geography plays into this. But most of this, and this isn't 45,000 different individual congregations. There's about 5.4 million individual congregations right now. There's 45,000 different denominations. Never mind all the non-denominational churches, even like ours, right? So 45,000 different. The reason there's so many different ones is because... There are so many different Christian takes on so many different things. And you can pick pretty much any topic in Scripture, any important passage, and they are important. But you can pick, I mean, you can pick Genesis 1 and 2, first two chapters in the Bible. This is easy. It's just a story of creation. Oh my goodness. Is it literal? Is it poetry? Is it this? Is it that? Is it, you know, all these different things, there are so many different takes, right from chapter 1, verse 1. And you go on through all kinds of things. Like, you take, you know, Romans, you take, you know, the one thing that unifies us is Jesus. And then you have the Bibles, which we all consider to be God's Word, or most of all. And, you know, how you read the Old Testament, how you understand the Old Testament, how grace works how the church should function, and you cannot get any kind of agreement. And by the way, in case you're wondering, you can pick pretty much any important topic in Scripture. And one of the things we have to understand, that's part of the reason for this message tonight, because this is going to be, in the end, very encouraging, and I hope a little bit humbling as well. But one of the things you'll realize, too, is we often tend to think, particularly in this area and among evangelicals, but probably all groups of Christians do this because all groups of Christians are, after all, human, and we just tend to do this humanly. But we all tend to think that whatever we've grown up hearing preached in church 
is what the Bible says. But guess what? The Bible says, can say a lot of different things. But what we tend to generally believe is what we believe is clearly what it teaches. I laugh at myself from my past. I often used to use the phrase, and I will still use it sometimes because I'm just addicted to it. It's such a good communication tool, it feels like, to convince people that what you're saying is right. But we will often say, us pastors will say, the Bible clearly teaches. And 45,000 different denominations all say the Bible clearly teaches in 45,000 different denominations, all says, Romans 1, the Bible clearly says. Genesis 1, the Bible clearly says. And then the other thing is that what we usually tend to do, again, because we're human, is what we believe the Bible says is what the Bible actually says. And everybody else who believes differently is suspect. They must have bad motives. They maybe are, you know, sinful, evil, whatever, liberal, fundamentalist, all these sorts of names that we use. But you know what the fact of the matter is, is actually, I can show you pretty much almost any passage in Scripture and any important doctrine. By the way, I'm going to come back to doctrine matters. It really does matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But there is a place of humility we need to come to. I can show you pretty much almost any topic in Scripture, and I can show you multiple different points of view from people who are godly, who love Jesus, and who are all intelligent. Not one of them, you know, you know, where it's not like, oh, one of them is just really stupid and evil, and one of them is, you know, ignorant or whatever, but there's lots of, so does the Bible unite Christians? Well, in a sense that it points us to Jesus, but we can go into 45,000 denominations in the world, and we can find people who are following, and we can find people who are not too, no doubt, in every church, in every denomination, but we can find people who are following Jesus. He is the Son of God. He died for our sins. And he rose from the grave. And thank God the Bible points us to him. Amen. Now again, those other doctrine matters, but Jesus matters the most. Okay? And that's really important. Now, I'm going to show you a story now in, uh, in the book of Luke. But one of the things I want to say is that as we grow in spiritual and emotional maturity... As we grow in spiritual and uh, emotional maturity, one of the things that will happen to a person as we're on this maturing kind of walk with the Lord, the longer you know Jesus, is the more we can begin to be open as opposed to closed to other expressions of following Jesus. That, I think it's actually a key sort, I think it's actually a, one of the key signs of emotional and spiritual maturity, and it's actually something that our world and our nation today desperately need to see Christians being able to do. But I want to show you a fascinating story in Luke chapter 9, and uh, Luke chapter 9 says this. We have this story. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons, right, in your, in your name, and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he is not one of us. Now, don't you love the disciples? I am so glad that they reflect us in so many ways. So they see a guy out casting out demons. It's like, well, he's not part of our group. I mean, he's not certified. He, he did some of those steps wrong, right? Like, I mean, Jesus is right here. I mean, we have Jesus. You can't not be in our group. So, so of course, they did 
the right thing is we got to stop him. Clearly, this is not good. This is scary. This is probably a slippery slope to something very bad. Amen? So this is what Jesus says. Go back and make sure he stops what he's doing. No. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever, and now he expands this circle. Like Jesus is a little bit crazy. For whoever is not against you is for you. Now that is a pretty big circle, is it not? Jesus doesn't ask so much of questions. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How was he doing it? What was his demeanor? Do we know him? Is he related? He doesn't ask many of those questions. He just says, oh, someone was casting out demons in my name. Well, ha, whoever is not against you is for you. Jesus, the disciples have a very tiny circle of who is allowed to be part of the group. And it basically consists of their group. And Jesus says, actually, whoever is not against you is for you. Now that is almost scary. It's so big, isn't it? Which, by the way, is one of the things I love so much about Jesus. I want you to notice how unafraid he is in this story. I wonder how much time, and these are just an, an energy, we as Christians, as we mature from less mature, I think as we walk, the longer we walk with Jesus. By the way, I could show you other stories. What about Paul in Philippians? He's in jail, and he's gotten to such a place of maturity, he, he says, there's people who are preaching the gospel just because they want to, like, spite me. And he says, I'm just so glad the gospel is getting preached. Even though it's getting preached with horrible motives by like bad people, he's like, I'm just, I'm just glad it's getting preached. Whoever is not against you is for you. That is such a radically unfearful place. Why? Because Jesus doesn't get scared. I wonder how much in as we are babies and seeking to to follow Jesus more and more, I sometimes wonder how much energy do we expend in fear trying to figure out who's in and who's out? And is that energy and whatnot that Jesus wants us expending? I think we're going to all be surprised at the resurrection and how many people are going to be in the kingdom of God? I think, we're, and I'm actually, I'm going to show you that biblically in just a moment. Because some of you are going, whoa, 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 whoa. So we'll get there. But I just want to just riff for just a second. I think we're all going to be, or many of us are going to be very surprised at how many people are going to be in the kingdom of God in heaven. And there's going to be a bunch of them that are Catholics. Oh my goodness, no! Not the Catholics! Right? Isn't that how some of us have been raised? Do you know, I met Catholics and read books by Catholics who absolutely love Jesus. Yeah, but they have some, they do stuff with, about Mary. <sighs> yeah, and I don't agree with that. Maybe. I don't think. No, not a maybe. Oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. I don't agree with it. That's why I'm not Catholic. <laughs> but you notice there with the, you know, Philippian jailer, Paul didn't say, 
believe in the Lord Jesus and whatever you do, don't have any weird beliefs about Mary. Somebody said. There's going to be some Catholics in the kingdom of God because there's no doubt I have met Catholics and read Catholics that love Jesus and believe he's Lord. There's going to be some Hutterites in heaven. Praise God. And some Orthodox and maybe even some Evangelicals, I hope. Whoever's not against you is for you. I think we're going to be shocked at some of the people who are going to be in heaven. I think there's going to be some hypocrites in heaven, and I sure hope so. I think there's going to be some fundamentalists in heaven. And maybe even a liberal or a progressive or two. Let's not push things too far. Whoever is not against you is for you. Because what does it come down to? It actually comes down to one thing. doesn't mean other things aren't important. It doesn't ma- mean that what you think about marriage or what you think about how we interpret Genesis or how we interpret... It doesn't mean they're not important. They, have, they impact the way we live. But ultimately, believe in the Lord Jesus. Whoever is not against you is for you. That brings me back to Romans 10. And then I want to look at a couple of passages where I want to biblically build a foundation for believing that there's going to be many people. But I want to show you another passage, not just uh, the the jailer's story. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Does it matter what label you carry? If you do these things, does it matter? Any other label someone attaches to you, does it matter what label you carry if you believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead? You will be saved. That's a reason right there for a lot less fighting. For it is with your heart. Now, I don't know if I took this out. Let me just try. Oh, yeah, there we go. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, but some of you are thinking, what about that verse? Where Jesus says, the road is wide and a path is narrow and only a few will be saved. Well, let's put that one up there, okay? That's, a, that's in Matthew chapter 7, okay? I'll, uh... whoa, whoa, oh, I missed it. Oh, yeah, no, there it is. Mark got it. Me and Mark are going to have a mind meld after this. Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate, Jesus says. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, okay, enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is a verse that bothers many Christians and has been preached in many different ways over the years in 45,000 different denominations. And many Christians understand this passage to mean that only a few people, that this passage must be talking about final salvation, and only a few. It's a very narrow path. And by the way, as Christians, you know, it's always interesting to me, there's 45,000 different denominations. When we read this passage this way, and we talk about the narrow path, we always assume our denomination is the narrow path. Too bad for the other 44,999. Thankfully, we 
have figured it out. And we spend lots of energy because behind everything we think just a very few, few people will be saved and many people who think they're Christians might not be saved because many are on the road to destruction. So the question is, is this passage building for us a foundation that only a, a tiny few people will be saved? Well, I'm going to tell you no, and then, but we'll come back to this passage, and I just want to we'll say no from the Bible, okay? So here's a few reasons why I think that passage is not building a foundation of very few people will actually find final salvation. One reason is because John saw a vision of the future. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. This is in the book of Revelation. And he saw in the throne room of heaven a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and for the land. We could go on and on, but I couldn't fit more on the screen. But repeatedly in Revelation, elsewhere in Scripture, we have this, this clear vision of a great multitude, uncountable before the throne. And not just from one little group of people or one little denomination, from every nation, tribe, people, language. So what's going on with the other passage? What's going on in Matthew chapter 7? By the way, many of Jesus' own uh, parables, other parables also seem to con contradict a few, and I'll show you some other ones, but I'll just mention a couple right here. Matthew 25, you want, if you want to mark this down, I, we don't have time, I won't put it up here on the screen. Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of ten virgins. Five of them are saved, five of them are not. According to that parable, if we're supposed to take numbers from parables, then 50% of people will be saved. But there's other parables. There's also the parable of the wheat and the weeds, also known, depending on which English translation you use, as the wheat and the tares. But the wheat and the weeds is a parable Jesus tells in Matthew 13 where he says there's a field of wheat and then an enemy sows weeds among the wheat and at the harvest the weeds get thrown out and the wheat in, are burned and the wheat is harvested and there we see a parable where it sure seems like the vast majority of people are saved because you have this whole field of wheat and just the weeds are taken out. My point is Parables do not give us a foundation for saying only a few will be saved. So what is going on then in Matthew chapter 7? When Jesus says many will enter uh, you know, through the road to destruction and only few will find the path to life. Okay, So uh, two things here that we have to understand whenever we read a parable or a passage. Okay? Sometimes when we read things as Christians, we read them in a lazy way, and we just automatically apply them to all people for all time, everywhere. But we have to remember that Jesus is speaking in Matthew 7 to a specific group of people, the Jews, at a specific point in time, the Jews who were alive in his time. And he is telling them, like he tells them throughout the Gospels, they are going to reject him. That generation will, as a whole, not everybody, but as a whole, they will reject him. He will be crucified. Okay? And he's telling them, and he's right. Only a few, he's speaking to this group of Jews, this generation that is, for the most part, going to reject him. And he's saying, only a few. This is a narrow path, and broad is the path of destruction. You think you're all being saved? Actually, many of you, just because you're Jewish, many of you are actually on a path of destruction, and only a few. And he was right, it was very few in his generation were going to follow him. 
Also, secondarily, Jesus is probably making a statement about the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. He's just getting to the end of a sermon where he says, turn the other cheek, pray for your enemies, love those who persecute you. By the way, how many Christians today do you know live by that? The Sermon on the Mount is our New Testament vision law for living. And how many of us truly embrace turning the other cheek, loving those who persecute us, and praying for, the, for our enemies? I think he's right that very few people are going to walk that path. But he's not making a statement about how many people finally will be saved or not saved or who, or who will perish. By the way, when you understand that Matthew 7 is him, Jesus, speaking to a specific group of people in his generation, not to all people of all time, another parable in Matthew 13 comes alive. He told him another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. When you understand that Matthew 7 is not talking about all people for all time, he's speaking to his generation, only a few of you will take the narrow path. This passage comes alive because Jesus was bang on, wasn't he? What's the largest, what is far and away the largest religion, single movement of people on planet earth in all of history and it's not even close? Jesus's. Christianity, more than two billion people. Nothing even close. It started out small, but when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. And then he goes on with one more parable in the very next verse. He says this, he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour. Seems like a bizarrely specific number, but that's a lot of flour. Until it worked all through the dough. All through the dough. By the way, here's the thing about yeast. Once it's worked its way all through the dough, you still can't see the yeast. It just takes a little bit of yeast, but it's all in the dough. We look at our world today, you might not see evidence that the kingdom of God is alive and well. Just like when you look at 60 pounds of flour, you might not see the grains of yeast. And yet it can work all through the dough. How many Christians today are living in fear? Because when we look at the world around us, there's lots of legitimately like, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? But Jesus said, his kingdom, but you don't know. doesn't mean that Jesus' kingdom is just about dead. Jesus' kingdom is like yeast. You're not going to read about it in the news. You're going to read all kinds of junk in the news. But his kingdom is going to work all through the As Christians, we don't have to be tied theologically. And I'm telling you why this is important. Because no sermon is going to just radically change your life. But what we hope by the power of the Holy Spirit to do when we're teaching here is to chip away at pieces of the foundation that might be leading you to fearful thinking that isn't biblically based fearful thinking. But lots of Christians 
think that theologically the Bible predicts a situation where things constantly get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So we constantly feel like everything's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Now, whether or not things actually are getting worse and worse and worse and worse, I personally, is really a matter of personal opinion. It's pretty hard to measure. But if you think that the Bible states it must get worse and worse and worse and worse, it's actually not in the Bible. Did you know that? In fact, we would go through history. Go back 2,000 years. People think, oh, we're living in the worst time ever right now. Lots of people. And, and then it's scary. It's very scary because it's getting worse and worse and worse. If you lived 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, were the leaders of the Roman Empire openly engaged in incest, sexual orgies, slavery, child abuse, crucifying people. I'm going to tell you right now, things right now where we live are not worse than then. Things are not worse than they were in World War II. Things are not worse than many other times in history. You know what history does? is a whole lot of this. Now, I don't know where we are on that thing right now. Are we going down for another one? I don't, I'm not sure. Don't know. But when you're convinced that the that the arc of history, the Bible tells us, is this. That's scary. Hold on. Straight down. <laughs> but what if it's not? What if history is this? And there's ups and down. Well, you say, Chris... You're just naive. You're a positive person. That's true. Both of those are true. I am naive. And I am a positive person. I am gullible. My computer here at church got hacked two weeks ago. Quick story, because we're not online. And the hackers will all just be coming for me like mosquitoes to fresh blood. I'm on my computer working on the sermon at home. And it my computer just freezes up. And then I get this very official, I have to say it looked official, it really looked good. <laughs> but this like error message pops up on my computer from Windows. It had the symbol and everything. Call this 1-800 number because your computer has picked up a virus and you call this 1-800 number. So I, 1-800 number. <laughs> a guy answered, it's clearly the Microsoft Windows tech support. He said it was. <laughs> and he told me, well, you just got to press this button and then blah, blah, blah. Tell me the number that's there. And I told him. And not long after that, our security guy here, uh, Jared Neufeld, who just does awesome work for us, contract, I get an email from him and it says, did you download such and such a program? Well, I just did what the Windows guy told me. Capital letters. This is a scam. Shut your computer down. <laughs> you know, essentially, you idiot. But anyway, um, <laughs> Why did I share? I had nothing to do with this sermon. Nothing to do at all. The point is, I guess I'm naive. You say, yeah, you're naive. You're positive. We're, we're definitely on a downward slope. Okay, let's imagine you're right. Let's imagine Chris is naive. Chris is just positive. Things are actually getting worse. It's horrible, 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 horrible. And 10 years from now, our kids will just be in this raving muck pit of, you know, immorality and, and all that sort of stuff. Let's say that was true. Let me just grant you that, and biblically, how then should we respond? 
Well, obviously, we should then, we should freak out. Except for Acts chapter 4. Blast the Bible, hey? On their release, okay, so Peter and John get called in. They get threatened with a beating. Another time they actually get beaten. This time they just get threatened with a beating. On their release, Peter and John, I almost said Peter and Pam, weird. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. It's getting worse. Guys, we are, they're, they're, gonna, they're coming after us. It's horrible. And everybody said, Wah! When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, I shouldn't have put the rest of this prayer up there right away. Because I know what, because we know what they would have prayed. We don't even need to read the rest of it, right? Because we know what they prayed. Oh God, strike down this evil government and all the evil religious leaders and get rid of them. And get us back to a place where it's easier. They start their prayer off and they say, Sovereign Lord. They start off by remembering that he's in charge. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Skip over a few verses. They basically repeat that. They really get into the sovereignty thing. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I want you to notice that they do not pray for their circumstances to change. They do not pray that their circumstances will change. I think so much of our praying is just so not paralleled to what happens in Scripture. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They didn't get down on their knees. Oh, God! (laughs) Please change it. They said, well, if that's how things are going to be, just give us the courage to go out there and speak the name of Jesus boldly. That's a sign of spiritual and emotional maturity. You don't spend excess energy and emotions trying to change things that are out of your control. Not that we don't have conversations or speak up. I'm not saying that. But we don't spend excess energy driving ourselves crazy about things that are actually outside of our control. We accept that God is sovereign, and then we say, give us boldness to live in this reality. So, here we finish. Three quick practical things. We are part of Jesus' church around the world. More than 2 billion people, more than 45,000 denominations. You know what that means? Be encouraged. Shoot. The church is alive in North Korea. It's alive in China. It's alive in Africa. It's not about to end because of anything you read in the news in the last week been around for 2,000 years? The diversity is part of its strength. I mean, you get pigs all with the same genetics, they all get the same disease. 45,000 denominations, how do you knock us out? We're always complaining, look at the lack of unity. I go, look at the strength. How do you kill 45,000 different denominations? I have no idea. Neither does the devil. Be humble. Be humble. 
guess what? If there's 45,000 denominations headed for 65, this church has been around for, you know, not this church, but the church has been around for 2,000 years. Guess what? We across few have not figured it out. By the way, neither has anybody else. Neither has anybody else. We're all just human beings seeking to know Jesus as best we can in our context. And that's all we'll ever be here at Crossview. And lastly, here's a dangerous prayer. Here's an Acts 4 prayer. Next time you want to freak out this week about someone or something or some group of people, whichever it is, whichever side of whatever debate you're on, whoever the people are that you fear, because we all have a group of people that we fear, whether we want to admit it or not, Here's an Acts 4 prayer. Ask God to fill you with love for that group of evil people that you fear. And see if you can keep calling them evil in the presence of God when you're bringing people who are made in His image into His presence. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? I want you to think today. God's not mad at you today. We're all babies in various stages of development. Some of us more mature, some of us less mature. As we grow in Jesus, we're going to grow in peace and love, not fear. Thank you, Father that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. Thank you that you are not going to lose to the devil. There's not going to be a handful of people in heaven. There's going to be multitudes from every tribe and nation and culture. Because guess what? Because you win. You don't lose. Thank you that your kingdom is like yeast in 60 stinking pounds of dough. We can't see where it all is, but it's working through all the dough even as we speak. And it doesn't rise and fall on us across view. We're just one more little group within this huge 2,000-year-old body of Christ. We praise you. We ask you to fill us with your confidence and love. Now we would go out from here and be peacemakers in the name of Jesus. We pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.